Father, we do pray that your son would be praised. We pray that your spirit would be praised and we pray that you would be praised in our hearing of your word this morning. Help us to submit to it. Help us to love everything that we hear. Help us to understand what we hear. Would you help me to preach this in a way that is plain and is compelling and shows forth the beauty of the good news that is on this ancient page. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Take with me your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. We'll just do this one or two more times. I haven't decided yet. You'll find out next week. We will be in uh, chapter, excuse me, 49 this morning. So that's page 42 in the Pew Bible provided for you. We spend our lives waiting for the next, the next thing, waiting for the next school year or the next graduation. Too many graduations in life these days. We may wait for the next stage for marriage, for children, for grandchildren. Not all of these come to all of us, of course, but they are the object of our longings and the normal focus of our waiting. One thing, one stage after another. And they keep us going, but then as life ticks on and the clock ticks down and the future gets eerily shorter, there are less things to look forward to. And eventually we find ourselves waiting to die. Well, this morning we gather at the bedside of a man who spoke of his own burial plans like a bride might speak of her wedding plans, as if death was not a curse but maybe a way into the blessing of God. What was he waiting for? We'll get our answer to that question in this episode. Let's gather around Jacob's bed now, as we have been for a few weeks now, and read of his blessings on his sons. Chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you In the days to come, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness who dares rouse him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk." Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. 
Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Nephtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by the spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. It's not always the first question that we ask, but I'll ask it. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? Twelve ancient names, heads of twelve ancient tribes, strange images, obscure prophecies, and a cave that is in the field of Machpelah, a very specific cave, a very specific ancient purchase. And there's the structure of the The whole thing here, our destinies, are they really determined full stop by our connection with the life of the one who came before us? Father lived one way and his sons and lineage are blessed or cursed accordingly. They're all called blessings, but they aren't really all blessings, are they? Sounds like work salvation, maybe, or maybe salvation by heredity. That's that's unfamiliar to the New Testament Christian in a way. With all of that in our minds, we're maybe not really feeling this passage. If you read high-level summaries of Genesis, Genesis 49 might not, might not get a mention. It's understandable. can't focus on every bit of 50 chapters in a high-level summary, but it's just a note that this, this does get a pass when a quick summary is given of Genesis. There doesn't appear to be much by way of connection in this passage to our place in this life. But then there's verse 18. And there's verse 18, a prayer in first person. It's sudden. It's brief. It's a cry to the Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Well, what was it about the things that Jacob was saying that would make him cry out? As if randomly, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Gathering around and listening, he said this to his sons. He said this to the Lord before his sons. Moses would do the same thing with the nation of Israel later. Gather around and listen. Here at Jacob's bedside, it is as if, and it is the case, that we have the nation of Israel, we have God's people in miniature, assembled as if a mini congregation to hear a word. And here we are this morning, God's people, in a long tradition, going all the way back to Genesis 49, gathered around to hear a word. God's word to us. To help us listen, 
I want us to listen to what Jacob says through the longing that he was expressing in that prayer. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Let me digress for a moment. Last night, excuse me, yesterday, I replaced the alternator in uh, Christie's van. And a transmission mount or an engine mount. It tells you how much I know about where things are in a car. It was a mount. And um, the history of fixing things in our car goes a little bit like this. I uh, find out something's wrong with it, and I start asking people. And recently, obviously, you look to YouTube, and then you figure out what you need, and I buy exactly the tools that I need to fix what I'm trying to do. Uh, now, earlier in marriage, I would just start in without the tools that I needed because I was too lazy to go to Home Depot, and sometimes I would script a, stool, a, a tool or a script a bolt or, or whatever. I've gotten better. I've learned my lessons, and I've gotten a little bit quicker. Well, last night, I, I went to change the uh, move this engine mount, and the engine moved on me. I'd watched one YouTube video, which told me exactly what to do, and then I didn't expect the engine to move, which would make it very hard to install this part, if not impossible for me to do. So I watched a second YouTube video, at the beginning of which the guy says, make sure you're on a level surface so the engine doesn't move. So there I was. So I started texting friends and making calls. Doug Iam comes over in his Jeep. If you know Doug, he's always working on something. I FaceTime with him right there from my garage, and sure enough, he has an engine before him with his son working on a plane in their garage, just like I expected. He comes over, and we get my car level, and we jack the engine up and install the part. Well, this week, I came to this passage and found that my normal tools for working a passage and narrative weren't working exactly right. But this text right here, verse 18 functions like the jack that gets the engine into place and makes it work. This verse right here, verse 18, I want you to hold in your imagination. I want you to connect with this. It's like the plug between you and the passage. Here is a dying man crying out to his Lord for salvation. And whatever your station, if you're not dead yet, you can cry out to the Lord for salvation. If you're not in Christ, you must do that. And if you are in Christ, we still do that as we await the end. This verse right here will be the prism through which we will come at the rest of this glorious, even if at first obscure, chapter. We're gathering around with God's people to listen to God's word. And what is the point of connection between this passage and our place in life? Remember how the story of our origins got going in Genesis 1 through 11, the story of death and the descent of sin from Adam to Cain killing his brother to Lamech taking pride in his murders to the violence in Noah's day to Babel. We are all waiting, friends, on an answer to sin and to death and to guilt. What are you waiting for this morning? What are you waiting for this morning? Waiting is the matter that pulls us across the book of Genesis as we are looking for an answer to that question. We are looking for the one to come who will crush the head of the serpent and turn back all that is sad and evil and terrible in this life and even in us. And waiting is actually the, the matter of our whole lives as we look forward to something better maybe around the corner. And maybe you've given up on waiting for something better. You don't have to give up on waiting for something better no matter how hard and how dark life has gotten, or how soon death appears to come. Well, in this passage, in this passage, which is long and makes its way across 12 brothers, we'll have two points of focus. Ten verses in this passage, in this section of blessings of 25, are given to two of the sons. So those two sons are going to be our point of focus for the morning. And we're going to find an answer to our question, what are we waiting for, friends? We're going to find an answer to that question, two answers, and together those two answers which form for us one incredible hope. Two answers which form for us one incredible hope. Let's make our way around the room. We'll imagine ourselves at, the, at bed, the bedside with Jacob, and we'll make our way around the room, assuming they're in order, to bless his children. Let's begin where he begins, first with Reuben, with Reuben, verse 3. Reuben, you're my firstborn. 
my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Those words had to fall on Reuben's ears as a tremendous relief. Reuben had reason to cringe when he heard his name on his father's lips, perhaps ever. Reuben, you'll remember, slept with Bilhah. This was in order to preserve a place for his own mom, Leah, in Jacob's affections after Rachel's death. He would demote the other women in his life in order to see his own mother by force promoted. If you're visiting with us this morning and Genesis is new to you or you haven't been with us through the series and there are references to former points in the story, um, there will be some of that this morning and that you might not be tracking is just fine. I am assuming part of the series behind us. But that indecent, disgusting episode in this story, which was dirty and which was wicked, was Reuben's. It was also strangely, noticeably, without comment from Jacob. He had been silent on the matter to this point. So for Jacob to speak these words must have been surprising and most encouraging. My might, my strength, preeminent in dignity and in power, language reserved for God. Except that Jacob wasn't done speaking. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Ah, what image would characterize Reuben's people? Water, instability. If there's anything unstable in this water world, it's water. You touch it and it moves. It can move from stillness to torrent in a moment. These words were even a greater surprise and hard to hear. But perhaps the hardest part of Jacob's words were his last, which he put in third person to Reuben. He went up to my couch. And you can just see the distance between the two of them, even if Reuben was the closest. Reuben's descendants would be marked by a lack of leadership. No prophets, no kings would come from them. They would only be found leading among the people of God when it was into spiritual disaster. And his people would disappear from the face of the earth, off the page. Reuben, devastated at his father's bedside. Next in line. It's exciting so far, right? Next in line, Simeon and Levi. What will their blessings be? Well, surely after hearing dad's words to Reuben, these guys were ready for it. Simeon and Levi, verse 5, are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. These two were responsible for the slaughter, you might recall, of the Shechemites. Their sister Dinah was raped by a, a Shechemite. They were indignant. Their father, Jacob, was memorably indifferent. And Jacob's neglect fueled their own anger. But they tricked and then destroyed, slaughtered a whole city of Shechemites and captured their little ones and took their wealth. Which is to say their justice was completely out of proportion with what was, yes, a heinous crime against their sister. They committed an even greater justice, injustice and put the whole family in jeopardy. That was Jacob's concern and he was right to be concerned about it even if he wasn't, as he should have been, concerned about his own daughter's welfare. These two brothers divided with the sword and they would be divided amongst themselves. Simeon's descendants virtually vanish after they enter the promised land and Levi's descendants would be disallowed land. They would be assigned to the priesthood, which is a privilege, but they would not have a place. So what then must Judah be thinking of as the, as the target comes around to him? And who is expecting this? As Jacob's eyes meet his, and he, is, he anticipates the sound of his own name. And we'd heard his name on his father's lips before. But this was a different moment. And these were his last words to be spoken to him. There's something about hearing your name. 
It may be exciting if you're wondering if you've placed in a competition, but I don't think that's how Jacob, Judah would have experienced it this way, excuse me. More terrifying, like when you're in trouble and found out. Perhaps he recalled at that moment his scheme to sell Joseph to traders. Perhaps at that moment he recalled his pursuit of illicit illicit sex with a prostitute in that dark chapter of his life, which is perhaps the darkest chapter in the book of Genesis, chapter 38, where he goes into a prostitute. It turns out it is his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who positioned herself along the way expecting, because she knew his character, that he would stop in for a visit. Tamar, who used his staff as collateral until he would pay. Tamar, who we might be tempted to cast in a darker light in this story, but actually we could say she's a kind of heroine. It was Judah whose son died, her husband leaving her alone. And Judah who owed her provision, Jacob, who owed her provision, excuse me. No, Judah, excuse me, I'm, it's end of Genesis. I'm getting all confused. Too many names. And I apologize for messing up Rachel and Rebecca in previous sermons. There have been other occasions I've been followed up on about. Trust your Bible more than the preacher. <laughs> Judah owed her provision. Yes, she was, his daughter-in-law, a Gentile. His son had married in, into a family outside the people of God. But, but Judah had responsibility for her. He had made promises to her concerning her husband. And he neglected those and kept her at arm's length. And the New Testament will say this is worse than an unbeliever to neglect family in this way. Because unbelievers know how to take care of family. It's basic. She could have returned to her own people, but she didn't. Presumably because she identified with God's people And the promise of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Judah's father, Jacob, identified more with that promise than her her own people. Apparently, she was more committed to the promise than Judah was. So she took the most desperate and risky measure, which he forced upon her, to secure a son for her dead husband's line. And the future of the promise, which we've been following, was saved. When word gets out, you remember that she was pregnant And not by a husband. Judah calls for her execution. Except she holds out the staff. And he knows what that means. It is by him that she is pregnant. He immediately knows. He owns what he has done. No doubt this had to be on his mind. As he considered what his dad would say to him. That moment was humiliating. But as you'll recall... It was also encouraging for us. It was also a turning point in his own life, marking a trajectory that would lead him one day, standing before Joseph, not knowing that it was his brother, to offer himself selflessly in the place of his youngest brother, Benjamin. A changed man. Judah was, at this point, standing around his dad's bedside, a changed man. And precisely the reason why he was not expecting these words. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? And this is the first answer to the question, what are we waiting for? And the first son who is a point of focus in our passage, Judah. We are waiting, friends, for a lion. We're waiting for a lion. Our salvation will be in a lion-like figure. He's called a lion. Our Savior is like a lion. A sign of rule, a king of beasts. What kind of lion? Well, let's, let's meditate on Jacob's words to Judah so that we might better understand who we're to look for in the story of Scripture and who our Lord Jesus is himself for us. We're waiting for a lion who rules without rival. He says, your your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. All the descendants of Jacob 
will bow down to this one descendant of Jacob. And the picture here in verses 8 through 9 of a lion is as of one who has captured his prey and killed his prey and drug his prey back to the den and who crouches over it in victory. You want to be on that lion's side. If you feel protected at night by a dog that yips if it hears a noise. And I had a dog that yipped and that's all the dog would do. He would fall in love with an intruder, I think. No, that's not. I should give him more credit for that. He was a lovely dog. But we didn't hire him to protect our home, though we were glad that he would bark at the right times. Just imagine the safety of this lion at the helm of your life and eternity. It's a brutal image of conquering and victory and winning and even killing, but is it not exactly who you want at the door of your life and your eternity if, God help us, we can find ourselves on the right side of this lion? Our lion rules without rival. And our lion rules without end. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. A scepter, he will be a a king with a staff. Interesting how that might have fell on the ears of Judah, given his own history, his own history involving a staff. This king from his line would rule. A lion who rules Without limit, verse 10, until tribute comes to him, he rules. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, which is to say his rule will be without rival, it will be without end, and it will be universal. People from all peoples will bow down to and obey this one, will give him the obedience of faith. He will know the obedience of faith from among the nations. People from all peoples bowing to him. There is an international global vision of the rule of the Messiah that is embedded within this passage in which we've seen in this book already. This book, as it is the story of our own origins, is not a book merely of the ethnic descents of Abraham, but of God's plan to bless a people from all tribe and people and nations. And we see in here even in seed form that expectation starting to sprout. Is it a good thing that this lion is at the helm? Will he be good to us? Oh yes. Ours is a lion who rules with undiluted overflowing, superabundant joy. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So much wine, a symbol of celebration and joy and an anticipation throughout scripture of the coming new age. So much wine that you can tie your donkey to a vine, a choice vine, and not even worry about it because there's plenty of it. See? So much wine, you could treat it like water and wash your clothes in it. It's coming out of the tap. So much joy, undiluted, overflowing, and super abundant joy. That is the promise on this page of this easy-to-pass-over chapter in the book of Genesis. And it's what we're waiting for. A lion without rival. A lion whose rule will have no end. A lion whose rule will have no limit. And a lion who will rule with undiluted, overflowing, and super abundant joy. Don't forget that when he gives you a command. Don't forget that when he walks you through a hard road. Yes, 
the wine will be that thick. Which reminds me of a certain miracle by a descendant of Judah concerning what he came to do at a certain wedding in Cana. Involving water and wine. He's also a lion who rules with incomparable beauty. With incomparable beauty. Verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Just trust me that it means he's strong and powerful and attractive. (laughs) The Bible's full of images that don't quite translate one-to-one for us. But this king will be so compelling. In our own life and experience, there is not a correspondence between one's compelling appearance and display of glory and one's inner character and trustworthiness. Oh, but there is a perfect correspondence in this case. And he did not have a form that we should be attracted to him as he walked this earth. But he will be so compelling to us when he appears in glory. To all of us in a sin-torn world where so much is so disappointing, a king who is this magnetic and true, that's good news. Well, here's what everyone listening, including us, just learned in Jacob's words. The world is waiting for a salvation that will come through a lion-like figure from the tribe of Judah. There is only one way of salvation, and it comes through the tribe of Judah, and it is this one. A ruler to put all things right, to put all wickedness down, and to put joy in the heart of every person that entrusts themselves wholly and without reservation to him. I hope that's you. There is salvation in no one else, and that's good news. It's good news for Judah, but not for him alone. It's good news for his brothers. Yes, including Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. You see, for The children of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, who would hear this in later years and maybe find some embarrassment in a description of how things went for them in their own tribe or or ambitions or outcomes, oh, their hope too would be in one from Judah's line. And it's good news for us in the whole world, for the invitation is going out to all peoples to bring about the obedience of all nations, and it's happening right now, and it's arrived here in Greer. The first answer to what are we waiting for? We're waiting for a lion. We'll hold that answer out there as we continue until we find our next answer. Let's keep listening. The next three blessings, they're brief, very brief, and they're not all exactly clear. Zebulun, verse 13, would be a haven for ships, an economic center of intercultural trade, from the sea. Good news. Issachar, verse 14 through 15, his people would find safe pasture in a good land. Also good news. Although they would succumb to the temptation to slavery. How is that possible? Well, total dependence upon foreign leadership. Even in slavery would be a greater comfort than the risks of liberty in that ancient world. And they would give in to it. And they would not entrust themselves wholly to their Lord. Then there's Dan, verses 16 and 17. A viper, stealthy. Samson would come from Dan and he would craftily defeat the Philistines. Excellent. He would be in battle. It's here, after seven blessings that Jacob cries out. Here's our jack for the engine of the the passage. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, our anchor. Our cry with him. I can only imagine standing around the bedside of Jacob, especially looking at how he'll be mourned in the next chapter, that they were feeling that with him. You just couldn't go any farther than this without crying out to God and pleading with him to come. We wait, Father. We wait, O Lord. Maybe you'll put a verse on your dash of the car this week. I don't know what rolls around in your mind as you roll around town, 
but you can put that on your dash. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. That's a beautiful and appropriate frame for any of our thoughts in a week. In our heaviest moments, even ones just like this. Maybe the rest around the room thought he was finished. Is he crying out in this way because he's done? What about me? He gathered himself and continued. And that's a relief. Just as we're glad the story of the Bible isn't done at the book of, in the book of Genesis. So now we have words to Gad, Asher, and Nephtali. The shortest blessings, a rolling cadence of positive and optimistic blessing. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid their heels. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Yes. Nephtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Shoo. Now Joseph, and a second answer to our question, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for a lion, friends, and we're waiting for a lamb. We're waiting for a lamb. I'm downloading a bit here, admittedly, from the rest of the Bible. He will not call Joseph a lamb. Why would I do that? Well, there's a puzzle when it comes to, to Joseph, uh, that you may feel as a believer reading Genesis and the rest of the Bible over the years, that you almost certainly feel if you teach the Word of God and have taught through the book of Genesis, or if you just hang around Bible nerds long enough. There's a puzzle when it comes to Joseph. It takes up a third of Genesis, his story does, but he is rarely, if ever, mentioned in the Old Testament or the New from here. How does he get this much real estate in the book of Genesis? How is his story this dramatic and compelling, even central to this story? And then he goes near without mention. He is in terms of word count from here, a side note. So is he a pattern of Christ? Are we to see Christ in his life? We may feel forced and seeing it there, or say it's only by way of analogy? Did God mean for us to experience the story of Joseph as a way of preparing for what we would find when our Messiah comes? And the answer, the answer is yes. And I've hinted at that and indicated that in various ways as we've worked through the Joseph story. How can we say that before we get into this blessing? Because we notice a correspondence between Jesus' life and his, perhaps, But we can say that with authority because of the way the author of Genesis has put Joseph in the story. You remember Genesis 3.15 in the promise that a son from Eve would crush the serpent's head. We should never forget that the promise and the expectation that is pulling the whole story along is the eager expectation of one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And in Genesis 12, we discover that that one will come through a descendant of Abraham. Well, in Genesis 37, you'll recall, we're learning about the, what's happening in the unfolding life of Jacob's sons. And one of Jacob's sons has dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams, his brothers say, after they throw him in a pit and sell him off. Our eyes are on Joseph as we watch him ascend and then descend and then ascend. And as far as the story is concerned, his dad's expectations in giving him a royal robe, his own expectations and the dreams that he had, and then watching all of his brothers fall on their spiritual faces, and then watching Joseph's integrity in Potiphar's house and trusted as he is, and then blessing the whole world in, a, in an early sense in his role over Egypt, how can we not see the emergence, even if we didn't know the whole story, the arrival of the one who would crush the head of the serpent? All of our expectations are gathered up and focused in this man. What's interesting, that in these blessings, you remember the words that we heard said to Judah, your brothers will bow down to you. And so now, guess what we know? We know where the Messiah is coming from. 
and it's coming from Judah. But shouldn't we hear all that we have seen happen in Joseph's life in those words? Would we not hear an echo of Joseph's dreams? I would put to you that we can download the story of Joseph into the life of the one that is to come from Judah's line. For Joseph, his brothers bowed down to him and in a small shadowy way, he blessed the world as a savior of the world from Egypt. Oh, but in a far greater way, the nations and the peoples will praise and bow down to and give their obedience to the one who will come from Judah. My point is, is that our answers in this passage are two. Something great will come from Judah and something great will come from Joseph. But as we come to the New Testament and the arrival of our Lord Jesus, they converge as one, a lion who is himself the lamb. So let us now meditate on the beauty and the work of our Lord Jesus, who accomplished his rule through suffering by meditating on the life of Joseph with the help of this blessing from his father on his deathbed. What, friends, are we waiting for? What kind of lamb are we waiting for? We wait for a lamb who gives life to the world. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring as branches run over the wall. He was a blessing to the world from Egypt. It's as though his fruit is spilling up over the wall. Anyone who walks by has it within reach and there's plenty for anybody in town. We wait for a lamb who suffers unjustly. This lamb gives life to the world, but he suffers unjustly. Verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Jacob is sharp in his mind in his last moments. Jacob must here be thinking, no doubt, of his brother's cruelty. Joseph suffered bitter attack, bitter attack at his brother's accusations and his brother's cruel sale. Bitter attack he experienced in the accusation of Potiphar's wife and bitter attack from those who resisted his rise from prison. Joseph has known a hard life. Joseph is the lamb through whom blessing comes to the world who suffers unjustly. And we wait for a lamb who entrusted himself wholly to God. Yet his bow remained unmoved. Verse 24, his arms were made agile. And how were his arms made agile? And how did he survive? By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there, the shepherd. God, his shepherd. Interesting in Genesis so far, the only time shepherd is used when it's used as an indicator of what the Hebrews were up to that was an abomination to and hated by the Egyptians. And so Jacob says to his son, likely donned in his Egyptian garb in a leadership role that he had, he says that God has been his shepherd. The stone of Israel, so much unlike us, so much unlike Reuben, God is stable and steady and he is dependable. Verse 25, the God of your father who will help you. All of God's dealings with his people would flood into the imagination and into the mind of all the brothers surrounding and certainly Joseph who has meditated on these things from pit bottoms and from prison cells and even from the palace. God's incredible works to his great-grandfather, his grandfather's father, and even in his own life, he sees them. Almighty will bless you. Ken Hughes summarizes this beautifully. Jacob invoked a waterfall of divine names on Joseph. The point, it was God in the full sense of these names who delivered Joseph, who sustained him, and who alone gives him blessing. And so, my friends, I say to you that it is God in the full significance of these names 
the stone of Israel, the shepherd God Almighty and the mighty one of Israel who has delivered you and who sustains you and who will see to your blessing in the end. And all of this giving way to a finale with blessings of heaven above, verse 25, blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents and up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Oh, if you want it, you better be identified with Joseph. The blessings are his. God will do this. He swears by his own name or he'll cut himself to pieces as he's promised. How would he do it? Well, we're starting to get the picture in this emerging vision of a future lion-like ruler paired with a suffering son who will, as a lamb, as the story unfolds, suffer in the place of his people. Friend, Jesus didn't look strong on the cross. He didn't look ferocious on the cross. Maybe that's repelled you from Christianity, and I can relate with that. The cross is foolishness apart from, apart from this preached word and God to open our eyes to see it. It's the only way I believe this. Pray you come to believe it that way too. No, on the cross, we don't see a lion, do we? Oh, but Jesus is crushing the head of the serpent there. Oh, he is a lion sinking his teeth into his enemy, the enemy of death and of our sin and of our condemnation. And he's putting an end to it. And the guarantee of its final end is in his resurrection. And so we hope in the Lord Jesus and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, that lion-like ruler who suffered to bring about his own rule and save his people as a lamb. How do you end up on the right side of that lion? Because you'd better be found on the right side of that lion. He wins. He has no rivals. And you can't beat him. Try as you may. How will you be found on the right side of that lion? Trust in his work on the cross as a lamb in your place. God will do all that he's promised. And we're starting to get a picture of how he'll go about it. Well, where did Jacob look forward to going when he died? He plans his death like a bride plans her wedding. We've said it's strange unless he's on to something. You caught the words here at the end from verses 29 and following where he commands His son saying, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. And he'll repeat that a few times over. This was the cave purchased by Abraham in in the land. And he will die and he will bow his head and he will be taken there, gathered to his people in the place that God has promised. And so he waited And he waited until his last breath. And as he, like his father Abraham, was waiting for a better country, so we believe he arrived there. Waiting is not easy. That was a hard moment, and there are hard moments left in the story of the Bible. You're experiencing some right now in the story of God's plan. Between this moment and the time that Jesus returns, waiting is hard. But it sure helps to know that the thing we wait for is secure and that the God who made us is himself in fact determined to bless us. In spite of all of our ridiculous failings and attempts to undo this thing, only some which we have hinted at in this here sermon, so many dozens that we have explored in the course of our series through Genesis, In spite of all that, even in and through all of that, our God is determined to see his promise of blessing through. No, this world will not end with curse and death and your guilt over your head if you're in Jesus, but with life and righteousness and eternal life in him. 
Maybe it will help for me at the end here to connect a subtle, a subtle line at the beginning of this chapter with the next time that it occurs in the story of the Bible. You look with me at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourself together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. In the days to come. That's an interesting phrase. In the, in the latter days, in other words. The next time this little phrase will, will turn up will be Numbers chapter 24, verse 14. Israel is marching into the promised land. And there you may recall, if you're familiar with this story, I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't. A pagan prophet is hired, Balaam, to curse Israel in order that she may not enter the land of promise, that she may not reach the destination promised by her Lord. And what does God do on the lips of that pagan prophet but transform the curse he intends to make and has been hired to give into a blessing, proclaiming that in the latter days that a ruler will come from Judah to destroy his foes, to smite their heads, to possess their gates, and to establish a rule of a king from Judah far and wide. Oh yes, even when pagan prophets are hired to speak a curse in the latter days, as sure as God is God, he will do exactly as he has promised, for he is determined to see his people blessed. Let's pray. Father, we came here this morning waiting, waiting for a word from you, and we've heard it, and we've helped, we've been helped by this word to walk out this morning into the, to our lives, indeed the rest of our lives, into whatever you have for us today, this week, this year, this month, to wait better. Father, we pray that we would be a church that waits well, that doesn't look to one another or even our little church for everything that you have promised us, but for a foretaste of it, that we would not look to our, our spouses or our kids or our jobs for everything that you've promised to us, super abundant, overflowing, unstoppable joy, a righteous rule without end and without limit. Father, you will accomplish this in your way and you are about bringing it about by your spirit. Help us to wait with eager anticipation and with patience for what you will do. We look forward to the day when you finish that work, when we see Christ's face face to face. It's in his name we pray, amen.